Africa, rise and shine. Africa, zora. Africa, amka na unai. Good morning and welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. And we are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We are on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 15255 kHz on the 19 meter band to Far West Africa. And I am Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, UN urged to impose comprehensive arms embargo on South Sudan, and FAO says people can get infected with Ebola by eating fruit bats. In economics, Zimbabwe to half its stake in the local bourse to attract foreign capital and in sports news no decision yet on the new Bafana Bafana coach but first up the news with Anne Musa a very good morning the train carrying the remains of the 280 people killed in the Malaysian plane disaster has been allowed to leave a rebel-held region in eastern Ukraine. This comes as the militants declared a truce around the crash site. Pro-Russian rebels conceded to international calls for the bodies and the plane's black boxes to be handed over to investigators. Five days after Malaysian Airlines flight MH17 was allegedly shot down from the Ukrainian airspace. An Israeli aircraft has hit more than 70 targets in the Gaza Strip, including the home of the late leader of Hamas military wing, five mosques and a football sta- uh, stadium. Police say tank shells damaged several houses along the eastern border of the territory earlier. The Israeli military says two soldiers were killed, bringing the number of troops killed in two weeks of Israel-Hamas fighting to 27. A Palestinian official says more than 570 Palestinians have been killed since then. UN Chief Ban Ki-moon and U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry met in Cairo, Egypt in a new attempt to broker a ceasefire. The United States has pledged $47 million in humanitarian aid to help Palestinians hit by by Israel's campaign in the Gaza Strip. Sixteen people have reportedly been killed, most of them soldiers, in clashes between the Libyan army and Islamist fighters in the eastern city of Benghazi. Medical and military sources say 18 people were also injured in the clashes. A military official says fighting broke out after an alliance of Islamist militia attacked an army barracks, killing five soldiers. Near daily clashes takes place in Libya's second city between the army and various Islamist groups, including Ansar al-Sharia, which has been classified by Washington as a terrorist organization. More than 15,000 Nigerians have been displaced in the wake of a raid by the Boko Haram militants on the town of Damboa over the weekend. This according to an official at the National Emergency Management Agency. It's believed that scores of people were killed in the attack that began late on Thursday and continued into the weekend. The military, however, reportedly tried to downplay the extent of the crisis. Boko Haram has recently escalated its campaign of terror by attacking many villages in Nigeria's northeast, burning homes and killing residents.
Rural communities in West Africa are at risk of contracting the deadly Ebola virus from eating certain wildlife species. This according to the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, FAO. FAO has singled out the fruit bats, which are thought to be the likely reservoir of the virus, which they can carry without developing clinical signs of the disease. The organization says although the virus is killed when meat is cooked at high temperature, anyone who handles skins or butchers an infected wild animal is at risk of contracting the virus. FAO Chief Veterinarian Officer Juan Lebroth says communities must be encouraged not to touch or consume wild animals that have died under suspicious circumstances. You could have transmission to humans, either the hunter who is dressing the animal, cleaning it for food preparation, or other villagers that may be involved with the food preparation, including women, and there you have that transmission of the virus to the human population. If that person is sick and goes to a medical center, then that particular ill person undergoes treatment by either nurses or physicians, uh, medical personnel. You could have the virus transmitted to those people that are trying to help. And if this happens in an urban setting, human-to-human contact contact rate is greater and disease can spill over. The Ebola outbreak in West Africa was first reported in March this year and is spread to Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone. That's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you, Anne. It is exactly 8.06 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, top story, the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations, FAO, is warning that increased efforts are needed to improve awareness in West Africa about the risks of contracting the Ebola virus from eating certain wildlife species, including fruit bats. Guinea, Liberia and Sierra Leone are struggling to contain the world's deadliest recorded outbreak of the virus, which is transmitted by direct contact with the blood and body fluids of infected people as well as infected animals. The West African epidemic is thought to have started when the virus crossed over from infected wildlife into the human population and subsequently began spreading between people. Dr. Juan Lubroth is a chief veterinary officer with FAO. In the following interview, he elaborates on the current status of the situation. Although it became really an international highlighted concern, perhaps around March this year, the first cases may have occurred in late 2013. And how prevalent is it? Well, it's hard to tell because we've had several waves of the disease and reporting in rural areas is usually quite poor. What we see different in this particular Ebola outbreak 
is uh, how severely affected the urban populations, like in Conakry, uh, have been. So it's of great concern, and as far as uh, prevalence, we have not seen to date such a large outbreak as we are experiencing now, although we've known of other Ebola outbreaks in different parts of Africa since 1976. And what is the connection to bushmeat and fruit bats specifically? Well, we have to understand what the uh, connection with fruit bats or wildlife in general and the human population, how Ebola virus behaves in its normal cycle in the forests. When we, as humans, go into the forest, either for hunting or gathering food, and we would probably hunt the first animal we, we encounter, which could be weak or ill, and then we bring it back to our village, uh, there is some risk there of bringing back, in this particular case, maybe an Ebola-affected animal. That's where we have the wildlife or bushmeat back to the village. I mean, you could have transmission to humans, either the hunter who is dressing the animal, cleaning it for food preparation, or other villagers that may be involved with the food preparation, including women. And there you have that transmission of the virus to the human population. If that person is sick and goes to a medical center, then that particular ill person undergoes treatment by either nurses or physicians, uh, medical personnel. You could have the virus transmitted to those people that are trying to help. And if this happens in an urban population, in an urban setting, well, then the human-to-human contact rate is greater and disease can spill over. What is FAO doing to support these governments? Uh, Initially, FAO has participated in some of the work of the World Health Organization in trying to understand a bit more what are the risks, how extensive the problem is, what are the connections with wildlife or livestock, and is there a way that we can contribute to stopping this epidemic. And that was... Dr. Juan Lubroth, Chief Veterinary Officer with the UN Food and Agriculture Organization, talking there to Sophie Othwaite of UN Radio. A campaign to encourage circumcision among men in sub-Saharan Africa has been backed up by research showing that men who have had the operation are likely to engage in unprotected sex. Three major trials have previously shown that male circumcision reduces the risk of contracting HIV by as much as 60%. But some experts have warned that circumcised men believing themselves to be shielded are likely to become more promiscuous after the operation and less likely to wear a condom. The World Health Organization and the Joint UN Program on HIV and AIDS has encouraged voluntary circumcision in 14 countries, African countries, where HIV is highly prevalent. For more on this, we earlier spoke to Dr. Avron Urison, Medical Director at All Life, a South African-based HIV, AIDS and disability insurance company. I think we need to, so there are two groups. If you are an HIV-negative male and you actually have a circumcision, it will decrease your chances by 60% of actually contracting the uh, HIV virus. This is because so there are certain cells um, under the foreskin um, of the penis that are actually, um, that are actually more sensitive to, um, to, uh, to getting the infection and, uh, and being infected with the HIV virus. Now, that is if you are HIV negative. But where there seems to be a bit of a miscommunication and that there needs to be education in the safety market is that 
if you are HIV positive and you actually have a circumcision, it will actually have no bearing on on your or your um, your um, ability to actually pass on the virus. So it's not adequate when you have when you know you're you're having sexual relations not to use the, the adequate protective measures. Now, doctor. Recent research based in Kenya um, has shown that modest economic incentives appear to increase the chance that uncircumcised men in HIV endemic areas would undergo circumcision. What do you make of this? Is this, is this not um, a bribery as such? Um, I think if you are, yeah, I mean, there should be incentive programs. Firstly, there should be adequate education. Mm. And then there should be um, adequate uh, um, um, uh, incentives in place to actually encourage males who aren't uh, HIV, you know, obviously barring all the cultural issues, etc., etc. But there should be adequate education programs in place informing people that if they are HIV negative and they do under, have circumcision, then it will give them, a, a, you know, a, a certain amount of protection against contracting the virus. Obviously, it shouldn't go to the extent of bribery, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but I just governments around, uh, around Africa and around the world should embark on adequate education campaigns. Now, Dr. Yurison, in terms, like recently, we've just come out in, I think, uh, some areas in, in South Africa and on the, uh, the rest of the continent, um, gone through the initiation season. And uh, mm. there's been a lot of deaths and uh, botched uh, circumcisions, um, young boys ending up in hospital, um, some of them having to even lose their, their manhood. How do we encourage young men? to say, you know, you need to do this and uh, do it the, the correct way, even if they do go out into the mountains, but get, apart from education, get them to get it right from the onset. How do we encourage young people and their families to let them do this? I think there needs to be moderate knowledge that circumcision is actually a medical procedure. And just as any other medical procedure needs to be done under the correct conditions, the correct sterile conditions, and at the you know in the, in the correct healthcare facilities, one cannot go out in the field and do circumcisions with you know with in unsterile conditions. It's it's highly risky. So I think I think I think the whole the whole campaign and education around circumcision that individuals need to be made aware of the seriousness of the procedure, you know, and what it involves. And, and there needs to be, there needs to be, you know, the government and public sector also need to perhaps put in the various facilities that individuals can go have circumcisions, you know, in areas around South Africa um, that are that's done under the correct conditions. You know, Dr. Yurison, you've been mentioning a, a lot of uh, education, um, mm. especially in this area where uh, people from ground level need to understand what circumcision is and what it entails and, uh, you know, the, the medical benefits of circumcision. Now, the misconception out there of men who are circumcised who then become promiscuous and reckless and uh, feel that they are invincible. You know, they're not yes. going to contract any sexually transmitted diseases or HIV yes. AIDS and things like that. How do we deal with that situation? Okay, so, and I need to stress that it's very important that, that, that there's no confusion in this area. Mm. Just because you've had a circumcision does not uh, make it more preventable of you passing on various, uh, sexu- any sexually transmitted or, H- or HIV. And, uh, and adequate for both men and women, 
whether the individual circumstances or not, the adequate sexual protective measures need to be taken into account and put into place. So it's around education for men, but also around education for women and the partners of the men that, that the adequate sexual safe sex, what we talk about is safe sex, um, need to be put into place and uh, practiced by all individuals, whether individuals are circumcised or not. And in the, a man who has been circumcised um, will be no benefit from if they are HIV positive in terms of passing on the virus to their, their partner and, um, and therefore safe sex needs to be practiced. Now finally, Dr. Urison, are African governments doing enough? No, I don't think so. So from two perspectives, as we've spoken through this interview, one, mm-hmm. a lot more needs to be embarked on education in the, in the school years and specifically the high school years throughout, uh, throughout the country. And the government needs to embark on a significant education programs in this area. And secondly, as we also discussed, um, the various healthcare facilities in both the urban and the rural areas need to be put into place that individuals who want circumcision can seek it out and it can be done in the correct there are conditions. That was Dr. Avron Urison, Medical Director at All Life Face, South African based HIV AIDS and Disability Insurance Company. Africa rise and shine. Africa Zorka. Africa Amuka Na Unai. Amnesty International has urged the United Nations Security Council to impose a comprehensive arms restriction on South Sudan after receiving reports of Chinese small arms and ammunition supply to the warring parties. In a statement, Amnesty said China supplied 1,000 tons of small arms and light weapons worth 38 million U.S. dollars to the country two weeks ago. For more on this, Jose Khodinake spoke to Amnesty International researcher Elizabeth Ashamu-Deng on the line from Nairobi in Kenya. A comprehensive arms embargo by the United Nations would require every state to take all necessary measures to prevent the direct or indirect supply, sale, or transfer of arms to South Sudan. So this would, in effect, stop the flow of all arms to the country. We were inspired to make this call after receiving reports of a recent arms shipment coming from China. So about two weeks ago, the Chinese state-owned defense manufacturer, Norinco, sent over a 1,000 tons of small arms and light weapons to South Sudan. This shipment included rocket systems, thousands of automatic rifles, grenade launchers, 20,000 grenades, hundreds of pistols and machine guns, and several million rounds of ammunition. As I'm sure you know, there's currently an internal armed conflict in South Sudan in which serious human rights violations and violations of international humanitarian law have been committed. We believe that these arms are likely to be used to commit additional international humanitarian law violations, which is why we're calling for a UN arms embargo to try and stop the flow of weapons into the country. What is the criteria the United Nations Security Council usually use in imposing an arms embargo as we saw in Somalia? Arms embargoes are one of the tools that the United Nations has to address issues of peace and security. 
So generally, arms embargoes are imposed where there is an overriding risk that arms flowing into a country will be used to facilitate or commit serious violations of international law. You know, in the case of South Sudan, the Security Council has already condemned violations of humanitarian law, including extrajudicial executions and ethnically targeted violence. The Security Council has endorsed a cessation of hostilities agreement signed in January between the parties and its condemned violations of this agreement. Um, it has also mandated a UN peacekeeping force in South Sudan to focus on protecting civilians. So in this context, we think that an arms embargo should flow naturally. But now, the South Sudanese Defense Minister, Kuol Manyang-Juk, says the consignment of arms from China was ordered well before he was appointed in July and even five months before violence broke out in the country in December. Surely that should make a difference? Well, yes, it's true that the contract, we believe, was signed in April 2013. But this large shipment of arms left China on May 15th of this year, and it arrived at the port of Mombasa, Kenya, on 7th June. So we believe that this shipment should have been stopped because, of course, in the past year, the situation in South Sudan has deteriorated significantly. The current internal armed conflict started on December 15th. And, you know, I think that China could have stopped this shipment from coming to South Sudan. The defense minister, you know, also has said that South Sudan has, you know, a right to arm itself. You know, and we would counter that by saying that, yes, all states do have the right to self-defense and the duty to protect their population, but they also have an obligation to respect international humanitarian law. South Sudan has ratified the Geneva Conventions and their additional protocols. They also have participated in the General Assembly negotiations around a global arms trade treaty. So the country is, you know, well aware of its obligations. And given that, there is clear evidence that government forces have engaged in targeting civilians based on their ethnicity and other serious violations you know, these these arms should be stopped. An additional thing I'd like to raise is that there are insufficient security measures in place to store national stockpiles of arms. So once the arms are given to the government, it's highly likely that they will fall into the hands of the opposition forces and other armed groups as well as to civilians. And so, you know, these arms entering the country, they will have a long-term impact on security in South Sudan. Amnesty International researcher Elizabeth Ashamu-Deng on the line from Nairobi in Kenya speaking to Jose Khodinake. The train carrying the bodies of the victims of the air disaster in East Ukraine was given the go-ahead to move its tragic cargo early yesterday evening. Ukrainian Vice President Vladimir Groisman confirmed that the refrigerator train was on its way to Chakov, a town that is under the control of the Ukrainian government. Many of the victims are Dutch nationals and the bodies were flown to the Netherlands on arrival at Chakov. A correspondent, and Strubach reports from The Hague. The train carrying the mortal remains of 251 bodies was stationed at the town of Torres, a few kilometers from the crash site since Sunday morning. 
Yesterday, Dutch forensic experts were given permission by the separatist militia operating in the area to seal the train and move it. It has been four days since the crash took place in this remote area. Earlier yesterday, Dutch Prime Minister Mark Rutte said, They willen onze mensen terug. The Netherlands wants the bodies of the air crash victims back. He called the repatriation and identification of their bodies the nation's number one priority. The independent international investigation was the second priority, and bringing the perpetrators to justice the third, he told the House of Representatives during an emergency session yesterday. Both Prime Minister Rutte and the Dutch King Willem-Alexander and Queen Maxima devoted several hours to listening to and consoling the family and relatives who'd gathered at a venue near the centre of the Netherlands yesterday afternoon. Prime Minister Rutte and King Willem-Alexander both looked visibly shocked at a press conference given after their meeting. There is heel, heel veel verdriet. There is so, so Mensen much sorrow, die, Prime Minister Rutte said. Soms I have spoken to people who have lost three, sometimes four people in one go. He urged people to stand by each other. King Willem-Alexander said he and his wife, Queen Maxima, had been deeply touched by the tragic stories told to them by those who'd lost loved ones. Hun verdriet. He said their sorrow, helplessness and despair cut to their very core. He said the disaster had left a deep wound in the Dutch community and that it would leave a visible and painful scar for many years to come. More news last night was that the black boxes belonging to the Malaysian airline flight MH17 were handed to the Malaysian government. According to media reports, Malaysian President Najib Razak confirmed this at a press conference yesterday evening. He also confirmed that all the recovered mortal remains of the victims would be handed over to the Dutch authorities and flown to the Netherlands. For Channel Africa, this is Lilian Strobach reporting from The Hague. The number of people in Gaza seeking refuge and its size has jumped to over 100,000, according to the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, UNRWA. An expanded ground offensive by the Israeli Defense Forces has resulted in an exponential increase in internally displaced persons in Gaza over the past few days. The numbers shot from 63,000 to 84,843 in a single day on Monday. UNRWA is currently providing food, water, shelter and sanitation equipment, but has launched an emergency flash appeal for 60 million U.S. dollars to respond to the pressing humanitarian needs of the people of Gaza. UN Radio's Jocelyn Sambira spoke to UNRWA's Chris Gannis about the situation on the ground. In the last few hours, the figure of displaced people coming to UNRWA seeking safe sanctuary has gone through the 100,000 mark, which is double what it was in the fighting in Gaza five years ago. Now, I say they're coming for safe sanctuary. That, of course, is a questionable phrase because when they came seeking, quote, safe, end quote, sanctuary last time, they found themselves, at least some of them who'd taken refuge in UNRWA compounds, found themselves being hit directly, in some cases directly hit, with white phosphorus, which was fired by the Israeli army. The neutrality of UN premises and UN property in a situation of intense conflict that we're now seeing in Gaza is incredibly important. I say that also bearing in mind that just a few days ago, 
militants hid 20 rockets in an UNRWA school, an unused UNRWA school. We came out very strongly and condemned it. We notified all the parties of what was going on, and we, of course, had the weapons disabled and taken away. But it's another illustration of the incredible vulnerability of civilians. We appeal to all the warring parties to respect the sanctity of civilian life, the inviolability of UNRWA premises and UN premises, and, of course, we expect them to live up to international humanitarian law obligations in relation to the protection of humanitarian workers. The Secretary General is on a media tour to help secure a ceasefire. Are you getting? Are you feeling any of the positive effects of that? Look, I have to say that seen from the ground, we are facing a massive tide, a groundswell of human displacement. Just in the last 24 hours, the number of displaced coming to UNRWA has risen by about 20,000 people. So the intensity of the Israeli ground offensive and the fighting that's taken place seems not to have abated. We're not monitoring the military situation. We're simply dealing with its humanitarian consequences. And as I say, those consequences are becoming more and more grave with each passing moment. What about aid? Uh, I think this morning there was some aid that come through from Dubai. Is there more aid coming through for the people who are displaced? Well, certainly it's very heartening to see this huge Gaza humanitarian airlift with 115 metric tons of aid coming from the international humanitarian city conglomerate of charities in Dubai. And I'm pleased to say that that's coming through via Amman and will go in a convoy to Gaza. We are coordinating very closely with the Israeli army and we hope that what is essentially an air lift will become an air bridge and that we will see more aid arriving from Dubai in the coming days. We've also launched a flash appeal for $60 million for a month of emergency operations followed by three to six months of recovery, such things as repair of homes, repair of shelters, psychiatric counselling for deeply traumatised civilians and children, and of course food, medicine, health and other emergency provisions. So we hope that particularly UN member states will give very generously to that. Do you see the fighting going beyond Gaza? It's really impossible for me to say, um, but we certainly pray that it will not. That was Chris Gunners from the UN Relief and Works Agency for Palestine Refugees, UNRWA, talking to UN Radio's Jocelyn Sambira. It's 8.30 Central African time, and Anne Musa's up next with the headlines. Good morning. The train carrying the remains of the 280 people killed in the Malaysian plane disaster has been allowed to leave a rebel-held region in eastern Ukraine. Amnesty International calls on the Gambian government to abolish the laws and iron-fisted practices that have resulted in two decades of widespread human rights violations. And rural communities in West Africa are at risk of contracting the deadly Ebola virus from eating certain wildlife species. Those are the news making headlines.
Thank you, and it is 8.31 Central African time, and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine, coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, going back in time today to 1962, Algeria declares independence following protracted war of secession from France. The Ethiopian government has linked the journalists who were arrested in April with terrorism circles in the country. The Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Haile Mariam Desaleng, says the international criticism that government has faced since the arrest of the journalists will not stop the country from effecting the punishment that comes with the anti-terrorism law. Our correspondent, Coletta Wanjohi, reports from Addis Ababa. In April this year, the Ethiopian government arrested three journalists and seven bloggers, all of them Ethiopians. The bloggers work for a blog called Zone 9. They have been before the courts of law and have now been charged under the anti-terrorism law. Their charges include participating in terrorism-related activities and conniving with international organizations to destabilize Ethiopia. Their arrest has attracted international condemnation, but the government of Ethiopia says that it has credible information to prove that they are related to terrorism. The Prime Minister of Ethiopia, Haile Mariam Desalin, says that the arrest of the bloggers and journalists does not have anything to do with silencing the media as the country is expected to go into elections next year, 2015. We, don't, we do not categorize journalism as a threat. Whoever he is, I said, he can be a farmer, it doesn't matter. The profession has nothing to do with associating yourself with terrorism. I think journalism has nothing to do with terrorism. And if you believe that journalism has uh, something with, uh, with terrorism, then I think you can assume that. But I don't think journalism has something to do with terrorism. Rather, journalists are there to fight the global terrorism because that's a threat to themselves as well, also to their nations and to their objectives. So I think that has to be very, very clear. The journalists, of whom two are female, are now being held in a prison in the outskirts of the city, Addis Ababa, awaiting trial under the anti-terrorism law. The Prime Minister, Haile Mariam Desalen, has also defended the recent extradition of an Ethiopian-born national by the Yemen government. And Agachu Sige, who is now of British nationality, was arrested by the Yemen security and handed over to the Ethiopian government in June this year as he transited through Yemen from the United Kingdom. He is one of a group of 13 men who in the year 2009 were convicted in absentia for plotting a coup in Ethiopia. He was then the secretary general of a party called Gimbot 7, a political party in Ethiopia that the constitution has outlined as a terrorist group. Sige fled to the United Kingdom where he lived with his family. However, now that the Ethiopian government has him, the Prime Minister Haile Mariam Desalen says that he will have to serve the death sentence that had been given to him before he left Ethiopia. The extradition of uh, Andargacho Sige, somebody said it's, uh, international law. It's, it's illegal as far as international is concerned. I do not know which international law you are mentioning about. This is not a new thing when somebody is extradited as uh, when it is uh, uh, involving into uh, terrorist uh, activities. I think many countries were doing this, not only Ethiopia, but even the Western countries, all of them. They are extraditing terrorists and putting them into uh, the uh, law of the nation and uh, bring them to the court. 
So I think this is not a new issue. And as far as we are concerned, there is nothing illegal. Internationally, as well as domestic law is concerned, it's legal and it is legitimate. So uh, we don't see as uh, an illegal act. And uh, this, uh, this guy has been sentenced uh, sometime uh, uh, before he was captured. So I think uh, we'll continue on according to uh, the sentence that has been uh, given. The Prime Minister says that it is the President of the country and not the Prime Minister who has the powers to approve when the death penalty will be executed. Ethiopia has been under international criticism lately over the arrest of journalists and members of the opposition. It continues to be blamed for using wrongly its anti-terrorism law to crack down on people whom it seems or it sees as a threat to the government of the day. Amnesty International recently criticized the arrest of four members believed to be of the opposition. However, despite the international condemnation and criticism, the Ethiopian government insists that it has the right to protect its citizens from any terrorism elements and it will continue to do so. Koleto Anjohi, Addis Ababa, Ethiopia. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It is 8.37 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now going back in time today in 1999, Japan's first deadly hijacking occurs when a man stabs a pilot to death and seizes the controls. The flight lands 49 minutes later in Tokyo. 516 others on board are uninjured. The hijacker says he wanted to fly a real plane. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Policy makers and economists from various countries in the world have called for increased information sharing in the financial sector to drive sustainable development. The call was made in the Rwandan capital Kigali at the just-concluded International Conference on Financial Inclusion. Silvanus Karamera has more from Kigali. The International Conference on Financial Inclusion hinged on a critical theme, financial inclusion for sustainable growth and development underpinning the need for further decentralizing financial services, especially to the rural poor. Delegates said, unless governments fully engage in this process, the poor in the rural are likely to further fall deeply in the abject poverty. President Programme of Rwanda speaking called for increased flow of information, especially creditworthiness, in order to spy economic dynamism. Sharing his school of thought on financial inclusion, he noted that financial inclusion remains a key driver for self-reliancy, among us, the nations. As we all know, there is still a lot of work to do so that everyone has access to the tools of financial empowerment. Financial inclusion should be seen, in fact, as a key component of the pursuit of self-reliance generally. Without access to modern financial services, it is more difficult for our citizens to save what they earn and invest it prudently. Financial inclusion is about 
bringing low-income households and small businesses into the formal financial sector to protect their assets, better manage risks and facilitate access to credit. Other financial sectors on the continent have evolved over the years. Challenges still prevail in as far as financial literacy is concerned. The managing director and World Bank's chief finance officer, Badre Bertoha, believes education is key in addressing these bottlenecks. Uh, our president, Jim Kim, a uh, year ago, expressed the views that by 2020 we should target universal uh, financial access, which means that we, we should target that every adult in the world should have a banking account, which is not the case today, obviously. I mean, you have 2.5 billion adults in the world which don't have a banking account. So we need to get there. And it's true that by starting with very strong partnerships, and Rwanda is a strong one, with the support of the Dutch government, which is uh, financing this trust fund and working strong with us, as, as you might know, Queen Maxima of the Netherlands is a UN specialist, special envoy on these issues. So together, I do believe that we can make a big difference, and whatever lesson we learned from what we do here, we can use them elsewhere. That, that's really the beauty of being a World Bank, being able to export and import knowledge on a global basis. Rwanda. Kenya and Tanzania featured prominently in the conference due to their steps made in availing financial services closer to the populations. The governor of the National Bank of Rwanda, John Wangomba, told the audience of economists, private and public sector officials, and central bank governors from different countries that providing efficient financial services is key in poverty eradication and propelling national economies. He said the available achievements in the financial sector today is resulted from measures taken after the genocide 20 years ago in Rwanda. So after 1995, with a new government, with a new outlook for this country, we removed all the controls, credit controls, exchange controls, capital movement controls, all that were removed, and opened up the economy. And that helped to increase the number of financial institutions from the four we had to 16 today, uh, increased the microfinance institutions to... Uh, 493 we have today, increased insurance companies to 12 we have today. And this helped to, to, to drive economic growth with an average of 8.6% uh, in the last 20 years. As the last FinScope st study we did in 2012 showed that financial, formal financial inclusion had doubled from 21 to 42. But that's still low, though it's good achievement but still low. And our target as a country is to achieve financial inclusion of 80% by the year 2017. The International Conference on Financial Inclusion coincided with Rwanda's Central Bank's Golden Jubilee of 50 years of its existence. Silvanus Kalimera, Channel Africa News, Kigali. Going back in time today, in 2011, a homegrown terrorist set off an explosion that ripped open buildings in the heart of Norway's government, then goes to a summer camp dressed as a police officer and guns down youth as they ran and even swam for their lives. At least 16 people are killed in the Nordic nation's worst violence since World War II. Frank Gardner has more. Tall, blonde and typically Norwegian, there was little about the man in police uniform to arouse suspicion but Anders Bering Breivik was harbouring weapons and a grudge. Police say his recent internet postings suggest he had far-right anti-Muslim views. Mr Breivik's Facebook social networking page, now removed from the internet, describes him as a Christian and a conservative, his interests as bodybuilding and Freemasonry. He grew up in Oslo, then moved out to set up a vegetable farm that may have given him access to fertiliser used for a bomb. What police investigators are now focusing on 
is whether he was acting alone or part of a wider nationalist movement. And that was a Norwegian court found Anders Bering Breivik guilty and sentenced him to 21 years in jail. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It is exactly 8.44 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Tabisola Hoko up next with our economics update. Start before you start. Tell us about the the the, the um, Angloplat selling its mine after a five-month-long strike. Well, well, um, you know, South Africa's National um, Union of Mine Workers vows to oppose that decision. So um, we'll see as it goes. Um, it could have had been obviously due to the strike. The Does the it have a bearing? Mm. I mean, look, that's how one can read into it, isn't it? Huh? We'll, we'll, we'll see it. We'll see as it plays out. Of course. You know, we we they they say they say they're making a, a business decision, mm-hmm. um, and obviously, um, Noom says it's it's totally something else. And uh, Amku, have they come out and said anything yet? Well, if it's a business decision, then it could be a lucrative one, isn't it? Have we for, ever checked that aspect for the shareholders? Yes, and not the miners. We'll see. Okay, give us an update. South Africa's National Union of Mine Workers has vowed to oppose Anglo-American Platinum's plans to sell some of its mines in the northwest and Limpopo provinces. Amplet CEO Chris Griffiths has confirmed they plan to sell some of the Rustenbergen Union mines, saying several bidders are already contending for the operations. Amplet is one of the three platinum mines that were affected by the five-month Amku Asia strike, which ended last month. The union's general secretary, Franz Baleni. Workers are the ones who are suffering. Workers are the ones who are going to be retrenched and lay off. Um, an exchange of hands of ownership, we have seen in some instances where this exchange resulted into a fake uh, operators. Griffith has described the plans as long-standing. If we don't spend capital on them, in time they will just sort of dwindle down and eventually run themselves out because they don't get the capital invested. Not because we don't think that these mines can be profitable. Zimbabwe will halve its stake in the local boss as part of a plan to float the company and attract more foreign capital in the country. Zimbabwe's finance minister Patrick Chinamasa says the government will cut its stake in the Zimbabwe Stock Exchange to 16%, down from its current holding of 32% as part of the long-term plan for a public listing. Chinamasa says stockbrokers are expected to reduce the stake in the stock exchange to 34.68% to pave the way for listing of the stock exchange. Policymakers and economists from various continents have called for increased information sharing in the financial sector to drive sustainable development. The call was made in the Rwandan capital, Kigali, at the just-concluded International Conference on Financial Inclusion. Silvanus Karamera has more. 
the International Conference on Financial Inclusion hinged on a critical theme, financial inclusion for sustainable growth and development, underpinning the need for further decentralizing financial services, especially to the rural poor. Delegates said, unless governments fully engage in this process, the poor in the rural are likely to further fall deeply in the abject poverty. Lesotho's Land Administration Authority has won an international award for service quality. The New Era Award for Technology, Innovation and Quality was conferred on Lesotho by France-based Otherwise, or rather, Otherwise Management Association Club at an event held at Rome in Italy last month. The event was attended by 70 companies from 50 countries. Lesotho's Land Administration Authority presented the award to stakeholders at a gala dinner held at Lehakwe, a recreational club in Lesotho last Wednesday. The association was held to commemorate Lesotho's Land Administration Authority's existence to reflect on the road the authority has travelled in the past three years. Indicators the Sawa, the US dollar trades at 1063 South African rands, 872 Botswana Pulas, 609 Zambian Kwachas, 058 British pounds, 073 to the euro. Gold 1311 dollars, platinum 1481 dollars an ounce, brand crude 10787 cents a barrel. Economic update. Thank you, Tabi. So, Msibuni Makura up next with the sports update. Thank you, Lulu. Good day, sports fans. And starting off with football news, after weeks of speculations around Gordon Negerson's successor as the coach of the South African senior men's team, the South African Football Association Technical Committee will finally decide on one or two main candidates today. The name or two names will then be forwarded to the SAFA National Executive Committee, who will then deliberate and appoint the new head coach in a meeting at SAFA House headquarters in Johannesburg on Saturday. With the first 2015 AFCON qualifiers already against Sudan only less than 40 days away, SAFA President Dr. Danny Jordan knows that the nation has been tired of waiting. The decision is a decision of the National Executive Committee. The National Executive Committee has not met and therefore no decision has been taken. Uh, What will happen is that the Technical Committee and the group that will be appointed will make a recommendation to the National Executive, but it is the decision of the National Executive to appoint the national team coach. Uh, And I think the, the difficulty is in this case, I think it's for the first time in the history of South African football is that uh, every South African citizen seems to have decided to get involved and debate the matter. Some even already appointed a coach uh, and just inform us that this and that is the coach. We will take all that information to the national executive. And if they agree with you, maybe the announcement will be consistent to what you uh, have already announced. Maybe it will not be. 
Meanwhile, Mamelodi Sundowns head coach Pito Mosemani feels it is good to have four strong PSL teams competing in CAF competitions next season. Mosemani Hussain will represent the country and the CAF Champions League as reigning premiership champions, believes the national team will benefit a lot if Sundowns, Kazi Chiefs, Orlando Pirates and Bedvets take the competitions seriously by going all the way. Chiefs have not yet confirmed their participation, while Pirates and Vets will participate in the CAF, champ- in the CAF Confederation Cup. Musimani says it will be good to have all these four strong teams participating to boost the senior men's team. Reactions continue to pour in after the 2014 African Women's Championships draw was conducted in Namibia this past weekend. Nigeria's women's coach Edwin Ogon has maintained that the 2014 African Women's Championship draw that pits his team against host Namibia and Zambia will not be as easy as it looks. Channel Africa's Tony Obani is in Lagos, Nigeria and filed this report. Former Falcons coach Ismail Amabo has won the team against overconfidence when they face host Namibia. Ivory Coast and Zambia of the 2014 African Women's Championship in Namibia from October 7th to October 25th. South Africa will face Cameroon, Ghana and Algeria in Group B of the tournament. The top three teams at the tournament will represent Africa at the FIFA Women's World Cup in Canada next year. However, eight-time African champions Falcons will begin campaign for the championship in August and Mabu believes that only the best players should make the final selection by coach Edwin Ogon. Women's football in Africa has become tougher than it used to be. There are no small teams again. The Falcons are no longer the strongest team in Africa. The best team is decided on how well they prepared before the tournament, Mabo said. Still on football news, England captain Steven Gerrard has announced his decision to retire from international football. The industrious midfielder has called time on his England career 14 years after his debut in 2000, having scored 21 goals in 114 matches for the three lines. Gerrard, who captained England on 38 occasions, made a special mention to the current England coach Roy Hodgson's who gave him the armband permanently when he took over at the helm. Gerard says his decision to hang up his international boot was one of the hardest he's ever had to make. England coach Roy Hodgson says he respects his captain's decision and praised the veteran's contribution to the England shirt. Gerard will continue to play at club level for Liverpool, who travel to the United States to participate in a pre-season tournament where they will face Greek side Olympiakos in their first fixture on the 27th of July. On to cricket news and upbeat South Africa will, car- will look to carry their winning momentum into the second test against Sri Lanka beginning on Thursday and break a 21-year-old jinx on the island. The Proteus, the current number one number two rather test side have not won a test series in Sri Lanka since 1993 when they first toured the country and beat the host 1-0. On their next three tours they won one test while losing two series and drawing one but a new dawn seems to be beckoning for the visitors after they won the first test in Hala on Sunday by 153 runs to take a 1-0 lead into the two-test series and hand Hashim Amla a winning start to his captaincy. Stain will be again crucial at the Colombo's Shesash Sinhasi Sports Club where South Africa won an innings, or won by an innings and 208 runs in 1993, thanks to fast bowlers Alan Donald and Brett Scolch. A victory at Colombo will see Amla's men reclaim the number one test ranking. They lost to Australia recently after two years at the top. And finally, World and Olympic three 
1,000 steeplechase champion Ezekiel Kimball is captaining Team Kenya in medals in the medals hunt and the 2014 Commonwealth Games, which gets underway on Wednesday in Glasgow, Scotland. At the Commonwealth Games Athletes Village, the Kenyan charges have settled down and are awaiting the action. They are seeking to improve the fifth place in New Delhi in 2010, where Kenya won 32 medals, 12 gold, 11 silver and 9 bronze. China Africa's Francis Mutegi is an Nairobi Kenyan and followed this report. The Kenyan government stepped in to head off a potential boycott of the Commonwealth Games by the athletes by agreeing to pay the team's allowances before their departure last week. Kenya is being represented by 195 athletes in the July 23rd to August 3rd championships in Glasgow. The athletes had demanded to be paid their full allowances up front before departure as the government had failed to reward the athletes to the 2013 World Cross Country Championships in Poland and the World Track and Field Championships in Moscow. Russia. But Kenya's Commissioner of Sports, Gordon Oduor Oluoch, said the government had now settled the allowances for the rugby sevens, judo and shooting teams who left a week earlier without receiving their monies. Well, those are your sports news at this hour. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorka. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa, UN urged to impose comprehensive arms embargo on South Sudan, and Fowl says people can get infected with Ebola by eating fruit bats. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producer Pumutora Magaza, technical producer Revelino Ibrahim and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info channelafrica.co.za or tweet us and follow us on Twitter at Rise Africa or send us an SMS to plus 2782-332-5905. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to southern africa is boosie with easy to love